I'd say one of the number one things that draws me to writing on Southern culture is that there's something quite unique in our people in that we prize crazy people. I don't know how that how that is, uh, it, but when you read Southern literature or when you just have a conversation with somebody, uh, you know, they will mention the craziest person they know. And we do it in such an endearing and affectionate way. And in other regional cultures, it's not quite the same flavor as it is in that in that backwoods dialect. We love our insane people. And and we we almost deify them. And I love that. I think that's just the most fascinating thing. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to a new episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. You probably know we are fans of all things creative coming from the South, and today is going to be a full helping as we welcome Sean Dietrich, author of the new novel, Kinfolk. I am Ron Block. And I am Patty Callahan Henry. Sean Dietrich, also known as Sean of the South, is a columnist, a podcaster, a stand-up storyteller, and a novelist all known for his commentary on life in the American South. He is also a musician and a singer and an artist. There is literally nothing this guy can't do. His work has appeared in Southern Living, Good Grit, South Magazine, and so many other places. He has authored 15 books, played on the Grand Old Opry, yes, that Grand Old Opry, Enchanted Thousands, and best of all, has become my pal, along with his wife, Jamie. We've shared a publishing house, and now we share a city where we live, and I was honored to read his very first novel. We are so delighted to welcome Sean. Oh, my goodness. What a introduction that was. I, can you uh, write that down and send it to my wife forever? <laughs> I will. I'll text it to her. <laughs> you had me at Grand Ole Opry, too. I know, <laughs> right? Talk about that. Oh, my God. Okay, set in the 1970s Southern Alabama, the book is the story of many things, but mostly about 62-year-old Jeremiah Lewis, or Nub, who believes he is no good. But now comes along 15-year-old Waffle House waitress, Minnie, and they find themselves in a life-changing and unlikely friendship. This is what the story on its face is about. But Sean, it's about so much more. What would you say the book is really about? In my elevator pitch, I guess, would be... And it took me a while to figure this out, too. I, I don't know. I came to writing through the back door, so I don't have a, a defined process, probably like y'all. The book took shape and became about fathers, in a way. It became about reuniting with fathers. That's a broad brushstroke sentence there, but uh, I would say that there's a lot of paternal rejuvenation 
happening there. Yeah, yeah. And that's just a short sentence, but it says everything about this. It's it's just so full of that and so much more. But the friendship between Nub and Emily changes both of them inside and out, and it wasn't always easy. Did you know that that was coming as you were writing? Sort of, yeah, because in my own life, I I didn't have a father from age 11 because he, he died of suicide when I was 11. And after that, I sort of started trying to piece together my father or a father figure. But more or less, I think my father, I tried to piece together him in different people, finding qualities that he had that I liked in different people and trying to reassemble who he was uh, totally subconsciously. But much later on in my life, I realized, oh man, I've been, I've been trying to relocate my father in other people. And that in itself is a hard process because nobody is the, your father and humans are imperfect. And so finding surrogates is, uh, is a long, <laughs> messy process. So yeah, I knew I wanted that to be part of the book from the, from the get go. Actually, that's actually one of the first and only things I knew I wanted the book to be about. Now, not only is it about both of these, but I want to talk about, I love origin stories and you know, because we've talked together before, but I want to talk about the beginning of this novel. Did you have, do you have any idea, or can you point to the first seed, the first inspiration, the first time it made you say, I want to write a book about that, and it became the book Kinfolk? What was that for you? Well, ironically, this house we have been in, so it's coming up on two years. When I got here, it's a, it's a 100-year-old house, turned 100 years old this year. We're moving in, and the guy next door to us is somewhat of a recluse. And I hope I don't know if he'll even listen to this, but if he does, he knows it's true. <laughs> and uh, he's kind of the cat guy in our neighborhood. Uh, we have a lot of feral cats, and so the cats are all flocking to his house. Now, his name is Bud, but the man who used to live in this house used to be his best friend, and he was a, a wild guy, they say, and his name was Nub, and that just did something to me because the more I heard about Nub, the more I knew that I knew Nub because he reminds me particularly of my wife's father who's passed now. And I knew, I knew this man. I, I just knew this man. And uh, it was very easy for me to, to, to put that character on a page and just let him do what he was going to do. And the story, uh, this one kind of hit me like a bullet. Some books that I write, they I work and work and work on them, and then I throw them away because they just never do come to fruition. You know, I'll get like 50,000 words in and just, ugh. this one hit me and worked, at least for me. And so, the, yeah, that was the seed, this house, Nub. So this is, you know, I'm in his room in Nub's, this was his bedroom, and I can feel him. <laughs> that is such a profound beginning. Oh my gosh. To know that I'm in someone's house that inspired a book, I would feel almost a haunting. Do you ever feel? Yeah, I do. I mean, there's lights in this house that uh, just click on uh, without, no one can can uh, describe when it's going to happen, but it always happens at a really strange moment. And our guests, all of our guests have seen it happen. And, you know, it could be electricity, whatever. But uh, 
I choose to take a little more ethereal perspective on that one because, uh, yeah, I can feel there have been five generations in this, in this house and they were all related. And the stories that, that these walls have, have seen and can tell, I just love it. Like I feed, I feed a lot on that imagined story that, that lives here. Oh my gosh. My house is 85 years old and I've done some research, but they haven't visited me for a story yet. That's <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, even, even right down to little things about him uh, that I heard to his height, you know, he was real short into the way that he smoked and drank, you know, the more I would say about him on the page and I would, I would ask my neighbor about, him and he'd say, "Well, gosh, that's exactly what he was like." And then it got weird, you know. Got. And we're going to talk about it a bit later in the conversation, but there are more than nub that a weird thing, right? With right, this. very. Yeah, we're going to get there. <laughs> but your house is in Alabama, but not the same place where this book is set. Right. But the place and time of the novel, 1970 Southern Alabama, is very specific. You bring Southern places to life with such wit and your love of the setting is evident. Southern as a phrase and a rhythm is soaked into your language and blood. So what do you think makes kinfolk and the South such a fascinating place for stories? I would say one of the number one things that draws me to writing on Southern culture is that there's something quite unique in our people in that we prize crazy people. I don't know how that how that is, uh, but when you read Southern literature or when you just have a conversation with somebody, uh, you know, they will mention the craziest person they know, and we do it in such an endearing and affectionate way. And in other uh, regional cultures, it's not quite the same flavor as it is in that in that backwoods. Uh, that backwards uh, dialect. We love our insane people, and yes. and we we almost deify them. And I love that. I think that's just the most fascinating thing. I don't know why that is, but so that that always draws me because uh, characters like like that that might be tucked away in in other uh, circles in this region, we we champion them. So that always gives me a lot of material. Uh, and the other thing I really like about Southern culture is uh, they're fading, receding fast in the rearview mirror. And if uh, we don't talk about these folkways and norms that we all knew growing up uh, in this part of the world, uh, from everything from our dietary habits to our, you know, our social manners, uh, if we don't talk about them, they cease to exist. So uh, I feel like it's a personal mission of mine to just at least highlight some of those beautiful parts of our of our ways. Well, so much of Southern history is an oral storytelling. So, right. and if that's being lost, at least we can get it on the page, Sean. Right? At least we can yeah, get yeah. it. Yeah. Amen. We can get it there. So. I've read that you said, I believe that being a Southerner is being a loving person, which is so beautiful. And not only the insane people do we lift up, but quirky people and funny habits. And so what else do you think makes us Southern besides being a loving person? You know, I don't, I don't really know that I have a direct answer. Actually, I don't remember even saying that, but that's a, that's quite interesting. (laughs) Interesting that I said it. I believe believe it. Yeah, it's true. Uh, I would say we 
as a Southerner, we have a certain hospitality that doesn't just show itself in the typical forms of hospitality, like, you know, domestic. I would say that it, it shows itself, like, for instance, I know you're from New York, and I know you're not from the city, but when we went to New York City recently, I had quite a time going into this one really nice restaurant with some friends, and uh, we got to the door, and I held the door open uh, for these people who were approaching, because that's kind of just, you know, second nature. I'm not I'm not saying I'm some chivalrous guy. I just held the door open for them. And uh, they walked in, and then this other crowd behind them, they walked in, and another crowd behind them walked in. They must have been like 10 or 20. Not a single person stopped and said, hey, thank you, or made eye contact or anything. And by about the 28th person who walked through the door, a employee from the restaurant came and said, you're going to have to let that door go. They think you work here. <laughs> and I remember thinking, uh, I guess it's showing. You know, I guess my, my true colors are showing. So I don't know. There's, there's, a, there's a different way that we treat the world, and I'm – I'm proud of that for sure. I like the word hospitality. I feel I do too. I, yeah, I feel like that's uh, it's not just a thing like hosting Thanksgiving, but it's also about a world view, right? Well, and I get a real dose of it when I go somewhere else. Like when a woman walks into a room, we all uh, men we stand up and offer the chair. It's it we don't think about it. It's not a thought, and we're not. I'm not being dogmatic about it either. It's just kind of a thing that we do. And then uh, when you go somewhere else, it's quite jarring to me to be in a room and a woman walks in and no one stands up to give their chair off their chair. And if you do, they look at you very strange. That's just one little example that, you know, it's, I, I find myself thanking my mother, you know, for that. It's a different world we live in. It's so true, though. I mean, I yes, I was raised in central New York, but I moved to the South for over 20 years. And I just, the difference was so stark. And I learned, like, my, my mother was really good about making sure we had manners and open doors for people and things like that. And I still carry that. And people are still kind of surprised that I do that, like like you. Just the kindness in the South. I just feel I, I was so felt so welcomed. And I did have to slow down my role a little bit yeah. because things, things moved at a, a smaller pace. But I love it now. And I just feel so connected to the South. I've heard it said, and I believe this is true, that you can move north and you can't become a northerner. But you can move south and you can become a southerner. And there's something in that. That's oh my true. God, I'm writing that down. So I grew <laughs> up outside Philadelphia. But I moved south when I was 13, and I have one or two friends left over from those Philadelphia days, and one in particular incessantly tells me, you are 100% Southern. Yes, I, I believe I'm that. Not. I mean, even the, even the accent, if I have friends come down from another place, by the time they leave, they're saying the word chair with two syllables. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And I still slip out of y'all all the time. So. <laughs> it's so useful. Right? <laughs> so Patty told me about this book originally, and she raved about it. And part of what she says in the blurb is, in this wild ride we call life, Dietrich has a special view and one he shares with wit and kindness in turn. And I immediately fell in love with the book. And I told you before we came on how impressed I am and how this research I've done on you. And like, I, I just, I'm so thrilled to, to meet you finally. But what would you say that you love the most about this book in particular? And what do you hope that the readers take away from it? This book 
for me became uh, has has become probably my favorite book, and there's a lot of reasons. But I feel perhaps I put more of myself on these pages than I have in previous books, fiction at least. And I, when I read my book for the audio and when I went to go read it, that was the first time I'd read it after all the editing process. And, you know, by the time the editing process is done for me, I usually hate my book. And <laughs> this time I read it in the studio. And normally I'm going through such self-doubt when I'm reading the audio that I'm just they have to stop the, the recorder every couple seconds going, God, you know, you need to quit. You need to quit down talking to yourself. Cause I think I'm, I'll read something and go, God, that's horrible. I can't believe that got stuck. At this time there wasn't as much of that. And I was shocked that I was able to read my own work and not detest it, which uh, is saying maybe something for me growing as a human being and in confidence or, but this time reading the book, personally it was a pleasure because on every page I saw a little bit of me and a little bit of something that I wouldn't normally share that I was able to share through the voice of fiction. And I, I felt real, I guess to reuse the word, I felt proud. I felt proud that I was able to go there and share it with my readers, but also people who've never even met me and who might've been through some similar experiences. Yep. Uh, this wasn't on our list, but I wonder if when you're reading it, the, one of the things I love about your writing is the humor that comes through. And I wonder if you, I don't know how you could not, I mean, just for example, the line that sticks with me is um, about a woman who's so old that she has an autographed Bible. I mean, <laughs> I couldn't imagine reading that and not busting out laughing. I, I love humors. I love humor. And that's maybe another thing about Southern storytelling that I love is you are not going to see three old men get onto a porch and tell a story unless that story is funny. They won't, it could be the most gut wrenching thing about how their foot got cut off or whatever, but there's not going to be a retelling of that event without generous humor. And I, I just love when a writer does that and when I can, when I can laugh and it makes it go down so much easier. So I love, I love humor. It's a great coping mechanism oh, for yeah. me. So, yeah, it, it does. It kind of diverts it a little bit. Sean, I want to talk a little bit more about Nub and his daughter, Emily, because their relationship is so heartbreaking, but it's also so heart healing. You said you knew you would write about a father and a daughter. And fathers seem to, for many reasons, of course, be an overarching theme in your work. So how did the relationship between Nub and Emily evolve, which is kind of a lead-in to asking, do you plot or just watch the story unfold? Uh, I definitely watch the story unfold. I don't. If I were to plot it, I would divert immediately, and then it would be a waste of my time. I know that there's a lot of writers that do, and that's just so impressive to me that they can do it and not make it wooden. But I can't. I can't do it. When I started writing about Nub and Emily and kind of their estrangement, it was very natural and very scarily natural to get all that out on paper because I can relate in so many ways. But in that, I watched those characters, and every day that I would kind of sit down to write, um, I was excited to see what would happen with them. And, and that's that's really 
rare for me to really feel that like, gee, I wonder what, what they're going to do today. Normally I, I sit down and I'm trying to work my brain into, you know, some sort of functioning. Uh, but this, this was different. I, I sat down and I knew Emily. I just knew her and I knew Nub and I watched them have this really dysfunctional, but in some ways endearing relationship that uh, hopefully healed in the end. I loved it. That was my favorite. Actually, those two characters were my, that was my favorite part of the book was writing about those two characters and how they transected. I loved, I loved it. Well, what was so great is you don't make dad all bad and you don't make Emily all right. Like they're both so complicated. And yet, even though they're a bit estranged, their love is so strong. I mean, it is the thread that runs through the novel. Well, I have been learning in my life, and it's such an overused word, uh, phrase, about unconditional love. And that is, Mm. it's so, we're so numb to that. But really, it could, it can save every relationship. It can save every, everything. If, if, if we embrace what we all need and want, unconditional love, if we can give it and receive it in the same way, I, and, and I just, I wanted that to be the theme of their relationship. So. Which might be covered under the word grace. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, totally. And I thought of them as this Venn diagram that they were both a little bit different, but you could see some similarities between the two characters in the middle. And that's just really what, one of the things that just sings from the page in the book for me, because she's not, like Patty said, she's, she's not all, all good and he's not all bad and they meet in the middle. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, those, like I said, uh, I based him off my father-in-law who was an alcoholic uh, and, and had a lot of the same issues and had a lot of the same personality. And I based Emily off my wife and they, I, so these were real people to me. I knew them and I knew when they had a conversation, how it would have gone. And I could hear it in my head because they are real. Those are real human beings to me, just with suede in them. So <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's funny. So, so your work is is very, very much considered Southern fiction and Southern writing, but you must have been influenced by some other Southern writers. Can you tell us who some of those were? Well, he's not a fiction writer, but my favorite writer is uh, Louis Grizzard, who wrote uh, a yes. and and he wrote the column in the Atlanta Journal Constitution, and I. I found his work when I was a child, but his work really became important to me when I went through my dark days when I was a child and my father died. I read his stuff and his language, his conversational approach worked its way into my psyche and he became a friend to me. And so his writing impacted me so much the way he commented and remarked on life in the American South, but also on just human nature in general. So I guess there's that. And then the, uh, the, the other answer, you know, if I had to choose a literary hero and of course it's cliche and everybody has said it a hundred times over, but I love Mark Twain and I've read everything he's done multiple times just because I like how he could take the tragedy of his own life and bring so much humor out of it. That's the singular characteristic I love about him is that he could be so glib about the hardest, hardest subjects 
so those are two of my main influences. I wish I had something sexier to say about, you know, a writer. <laughs> but no, I just, no. That's awesome. I'm not, I'm not that – I love to read, but I'm – my favorite authors are women, and usually they're old women, and usually they're dead. So, <laughs> so one of the most extraordinary things happened when you were writing this book. We were talking about the magic of Nub having lived in your house and you feeling like you could feel him, and, and you'd write a characteristic about him and then find out that that was something he had. But while you were writing this book, you proved that writing is magic. Because in this novel, no spoilers, but a certain character is called up to the Grand Old Opry. And you, Sean, were also called up to the Grand Old Opry. First, tell us how this coincidence felt to you. And then please tell us what it felt like in real life when this happened. <laughs> okay, so so right outside this office is a little porch. And when the weather gets warm, I go out there and I write. And I spend most of my days out there. Very little time actually in here writing because I just loved to be outside. And one morning I went out to the porch and I sat in a rocking chair that we have that belonged to my wife's great-grandfather. Wow. So I'm rocking in this chair. I'm looking at the street and I, the, I was in the beginning stages of writing this manuscript and I said, okay, this this has to involve the Grand Ole Opry. This, this is this is definitely a facet of the book that I want to include. I want to include the history of it. I want to include all the things I love about it, because I'm a huge fan. And I've I, we lived in Tennessee for a hot minute when I was a kid. My dad built the GM factory, and so we lived in Spring Hill, and we would go to the Opry quite a bit. And it was such a release for me as a child, and I can never forget sitting in those seats. And watching those guys in the nine-gallon hats get up there and play the twin fiddle intros and the steel guitar solos, and I just I was I was knocked out as a kid. I knew that that's that was a, something I wanted in my life. I wanted to do that. Yeah. Uh, so I sat on that porch and I included this stuff about the Grand Opera, and then it, it just got deeper and deeper until I was really doing research on the opera and and, and writing about a lot of stuff on the opera. And one day in the in stages of my manuscript, my rough manuscript, we were doing the show in Franklin, Tennessee. And uh, I guess there, you know, we had some friends there. And uh, at the end of the show, uh, there was rumor that, you know, this could happen to me. No one knew about my book. I had not even told my wife about my book. I had not told my publishers about this book. I don't tell anybody about it because it's so subject to change. Uh, I could change anything and it you know, won't be anything like what I thought it'd be like. So no one knows about this opera thing. And we're in a hotel a few days later and Jamie gets a call and she's going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And it seems so serious. And I'm looking at her going, she, she handles all of our booking stuff. And I, I said, what's, what's wrong? She said, hanging up, she says, that was the Grand Ole Opry. And they would like you to be on their show. Oh, my God. And I just looked at her and I said, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I said, have you been reading my stuff or something? Are you, or did you hear us talking in Franklin? Or, you know, she said, no, I don't know how this happened. You know, it, it, so that's where that went. So I was freaked out, freaked out. I could not believe it because I just couldn't believe it. And I won't spoil anything. It's hard to talk about this without talking about the characters in the book, but I could not believe right. the, syn the synchronicity of what just happened. So You opened a portal or something. 
<laughs> Amen. I mean, it really, really, there, there, if, yes. So uh, I, I show up to the Grand Ole Opry and I get there and I'm getting frisked, uh, patted down by security before I go in. My guitars, you know, going to the metal detector and the lady who's patting me down says, we're just such a fan of your work here and on the security team and the security staff. And, and we just love to read your stuff. And I'm looking at her going, you, are you sure you, you got the right guy that you're talking to? I said, cause I, I, I don't, I was raised in trailers. I mean, really? She said, yeah, we really like you. Can I get my picture with you? And I said, what? I said, I was, I want my picture with you. I mean, I'm, I'm here at the Grand Ole Opry. So they treated me like royalty. I could not, it was, it was wrong. It all felt so wrong. It, none of it felt, this didn't feel right. And I had this dressing room that had repeatedly been Dolly Parton's and I'm looking in the mirror before showtime thinking, well, oh, the things this mirror has seen. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the lady comes back and she says, all right, uh, uh, you're on. And my, my body just went numb. And I said, oh, okay. And we walked down the hallway and my wife was beside me and we got to the stage uh, and I could see all the, the, the balconies and the people and all that. And I'm, I'm not processing what's happening. I'm not even alive. I'm just, I'm just a walking, talking piece of defecating meat. And she puts her hand on my shoulders, Jamie behind me. And she says, they're calling your name. Go. And I just walked out onto the stage. When I got out to the stage, Two faces that I saw, well, three things I saw. One thing I saw was one of my readers was out there and had printed up a huge poster board of my father's face that he'd found from social media that I've, of pictures I've posted of my daddy. And he put it on a huge stick and he held it up. And there was my dad's face looking at me at the Opry because wow. there's, there's not a person on this planet who would have been happier to see me on that show in particular than my daddy. And then I looked out and I saw three of my editors for this book. And I knew that they knew because we had, we had already gone through the editing process. They had seen my, they had read the scenes that I've written about this, you know, one year earlier about what this would be like to be on the Opry stage. And they were crying. All of them were crying. And I'm crying. So I cried on stage big time. And I knew they knew what was going through my head. And I got up to that microphone and I, I told myself, you've got to stop crying, big boy, and you've got to do your show. And after that, it was a blur. It was a great, it was a great, it was probably the greatest night of my entire life. And it had nothing to do with the show or with the the pomp and circumstance of, of the Opry. It had everything to do with your life coming full circle. And that's what it felt like for me. It was just one of those moments, those benchmarks in life where the pain in childhood and the suffrage that you go through comes full circle and you realize there is some sort of great story at work here. And that story is your life. Okay, we're done. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, drop the mic. Over. It's That's gorgeous story oh my god it was it's the most powerful experience i've ever had i mean i've never had an experience that powerful i mean afterward I, I we had a meet and greet for all the people who had come to see the opry i wanted to give them i wanted to give them 
my love because they they did this to me, the people who've read my work. And we had this meet and greet, and we rented this little place. And the place, there were people standing around on the sidewalk, lining the block. And I got to the stage, and I sang one song. I hired my friend's band, uh, who I've known, you know, played with for years. And I looked at my friends, and we were all smiling and crying. And we hugged, and I stood on that stage, and I addressed everybody and said, I will hug every last person in this place. I will be the last one to leave this building. I just want to thank you. And I hugged people until five o'clock in the morning. It wow. was the longest night of my life. I mean, I, Jamie said, when you took off my clothes, they could have stood up on their own. I was covered in sweat and makeup and lipstick and all that. It was just a wonderful, I have never, and one girl came to the line for hugs. And she had she had survived the suicide of one parent, and her her life story mirrored mine in a lot of ways. And she came through, and she was crying, and she said, "I'm looking at all this and all these people who are here, and how you're hugging everybody, and everybody is hugging each other, and everybody is smiling and laughing, and it's just this this enormous outpouring of love." She said, "I have to believe that heaven is going to be a lot like this," and I we embraced and, and and wept for a long time because I think that's the closest glimpse of heaven I'll ever have because there was so much love being channeled at me and 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 I I was I was humbled but oh Sean I mean I feel I always say that if we take the time to look as an overview you can see the stepping stones to where we get, and a lot of times those stepping stones are pretty brutal. But if you can pause, like you did that night and that you're doing right now in the retelling, right? You can see the full circle. You can see the grace in all of it. Yeah, and and really, God is the original storyteller, and he's Mm -hmm. a lot better at it than I am. He's really, really good at making a story (laughs) with, with all these ins and outs. And if you... If you take a break, like you said, and look at the story that he's writing, Just he's really good. Take a pause. <laughs> yeah. So there is a phrase that's often repeated in the novel. It's the first line Minnie Pearl said on the stage when she went to the Grand Old Opry. I bet you can say it. What is it? Yeah. I'm just so proud to be here. Yeah. yeah. So talk um, to us about using that and what it means. So that's always been one of my favorite work, favorite phrases. It's such a, especially when it comes to performance, because because if you don't love your audience and they don't love you, they're not going to love what you do, and there's really going to be no connection. Yeah. And I lo- I came to all this that I'm doing for my career, if you want to call it that, uh, later in life. So I have a lot of uh, love for the people who've brought me here. And on a much more philosophical level, I'm just proud to be here. I'm proud to be here. And I love, I just have loved that, that phrase that she said. It was such a humble phrase that she was a child of the depression. And she was one of those people who was just grateful and felt lucky to have what they had. And that's came through in those words. I love that. And I'll never forget uh, in Greenville, Alabama in the eighties, there was a, sheriff of Butler County, and he was at the courthouse testifying uh, about a, uh, like a divorce case. And in that, in that testimony, uh, the, 
the husband came into the courthouse with a gun and shot the sheriff. And it was a big standoff, a horrible, horrible thing. And when they brought the sheriff out of the courthouse, the national news media was there and they put the camera right in his face. They said, how do you feel? And he said, I'm just so proud to be here. (laughs) And I thought... I just needed that to be a part of the book. So when I got to the Opry stage and I went out there, my first words over the microphone to that audience where I am just so proud to be here. I bet they went crazy. Yeah, and I did too. That's awesome. Uh, Wow. Okay. (laughs) How do we recover from that? (laughs) No. Okay, so you're Sean Dietrich, the novelist, Sean of the South blogger and writer, and Sean the musician. But I just want to say something about the Sean of the South blogs, your posts every day. When we read about the the dog and, and about Becca, it's like, it's just so heartwarming. And it's just, it's, and, and now that I have met you, like, that is you on a page. And I just oh. love that about you. Because it's just so authentic. Well, thank you. But you have so many wild creative expressions that you're 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 showing to us and showing to the world do you see yourself as one of these more than another no i don't it's kind of like a multi-headed monster you know it just kind of it just is what it is i don't i don't know what it what i am and i've gone so long trying to figure it out what i am and and now i guess i'm just kind of all the above or none of the, the above. No, I don't well, I'd say all, but <laughs> I love, I do love the column or the blog. It's saved my life in so many ways. Having this, uh, this outlet to talk to people and to, to be, to write things that are seemingly unimportant. And, and I love that. It's so, it's a, it's a casual form of writing that is not, industry standard you know it goes it's like your old columnists you know they it was the daily miracle they wrote this little offering and i love i love the simplicity of it and i love to do it it's it's i can't process an experience or or live through an experience period without writing about it in that short blog column form i love i love it so that's but they're all my favorite i mean i love performing too Yes. Well, speaking of performing, you, your music is kind of focused on the old time country. And I think Patty joins me in that this was what we we were brought up with. So I yes. like when you names like Roy Acuff and, and yes. um, little Jimmy Dickens and <laughs> oh, yeah. they're so familiar to us. And my grandmother used to, I'm just going to throw this in there. My grandmother used to say that when we come to visit her, she'd be like, I'm just so proud to be here. When I love it. I like, love so it. she's totally the mini Pearl thing like got me. So I love it. Who were some of your biggest musical influences? Well, and I talk about, I think I talk about that in the book, which is so interesting because I never really talk about that. I, I definitely, it would be Hank Sr. Uh, he's one of my, my top uh, influ, uh, influencers, I guess. And, uh, and I love the music that before it was considered country, uh, it was just American folk music or just just they, i mean now they call it old time music and which is very different from bluegrass but it's it's the old instruments it's the old songs that have a totally different form than the new stuff and they say so much and i love those tunes because when i sing them or when i play them i'm touching 
the story of my grandfather and where he learned that song from and where he learned that song from and so on and so forth. All of my ancestors are buried within that tune, and now it's my turn to to touch that that piece of poetry that has been passed on, and maybe I can bring something to it, add to it, uh, a verse maybe because these were none, no, there are no writers of these songs. You can't find who wrote this song. It, it, these were communal music, and I love I love that. I love to be able to to touch my own history and touch the history of others and, and sing a song with the banjo or the guitar or the fiddle. And, and there's a piece of our DNA that recognizes that music and that's how the opera started. So that's what I, that would be one of my greatest influences. Sean, this has been such a powerful discussion. Yes. Well, I appreciate, I appreciate the opportunity to come and talk with some legitimate literary people. Oh, <laughs> this feels really, this feels really good. And you know, we could talk about writing and creativity for another couple of hours, but I want to end on something fun. So we thought we'd love to do a little Southern lightning round with you. You ready? Okay. Yeah. You're up. On. You ready? All right. Favorite Southern novel. <sighs> Favorite Southern novel, probably Huck Finn. Awesome, good, yeah. good. I read it this summer, and I and I, I found so much in it that I love. Okay, go ahead. It's funny, you, and you can read it again and, and get a completely yes. different perspective. Yes, on it. it's awesome. Yes. Okay, favorite Southern saying. Ah, uh, you can want in one hand and poop in the other, and see which one fills up first. <laughs> Yes. yes. <laughs> I thought you were going to say I'm just proud to be here. All right. Uh, that's okay. Favorite Southern food? Probably chicken and dumplings. I just, it, it has everything you need. It's my desert island food. I went through a period last year. Jamie cooked it because she makes it from scratch. She's very good at it. She made it for me for 132 days straight. What? And I ate chicken and dumplings wow. for 132 dinners straight. And I never got tired of it that's the only food that i could ever do that with i love that i'm not going to try that but i love that <laughs> <laughs> okay uh favorite southern song hmm hard times it's a song by stephen foster hard times come again no more i think it was eight redone by emmylou harris yeah 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 yes. i love that awesome. that's great favorite southern insult You don't know whether to wind your watch or scratch your butt or wind your butt or scratch your watch. Oh, I I'm going to use it. All right. <laughs> That's a good one. Okay. Favorite Southern place? Probably, I like Savannah, Georgia a lot. Yeah. I, there's something magic in there and I love it. So, Savannah, I'm probably. I write a lot about it. Oh, I love it. Yeah. It's a special place. Yep. Yep. Well, Sean, we've just had the best time talking with you. The book can focus sure to resonate with readers, and hopefully you will now have many more Sean of the South fans to follow your posts. And if I can add to that, go get on board with that, everybody. You also have one of the kindest and heartwarming Instagram accounts. Share with our listeners how people can connect with you online. Well, like my daddy used to say, I'm like stepping in horse dookie. I'm everywhere. So you can just, you can type my name in and find anything on Google. I really, I'm, a, I'm all over the place. You are. And a great Instagram account, if I haven't said that already. I love your Instagram. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me here. It's, I'm, I've, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you.
Well, there you have it. Another heartwarming, informative, and very special episode. Please consider visiting our friendsinfictionbookshop.org page to purchase a copy of Kinfolk and save a little money while helping out our indie bookstores. Thanks for listening each and every Friday, and please tell a friend. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends in Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here.